It was kind of everything. Um, we had a facilitator from outside the industry that was really good at kind of making sure everybody had a voice and that we had time to do all of those things you just said. So yes, there's post-its, but there was also um, kind of breakouts. There was group sessions. There was lots of whiteboarding. There was some presentations we had. I think there was probably about 15 people, which is a lot, but actually not all of them were execs. We brought in some of the really specialist product people from Slingshot. And some of our investors as well, two incredible investors that we have came and just helped us look at what is the future from a you know, more investment perspective, like what would people want to see? So that worked. Hi, I'm Belden Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Melissa Quinn, General Manager of Data. Melissa wants to make sure space is an asset we can continue to use, even as it becomes more crowded. Join me for an education in the business of space, strategy development in a high-tech global startup, and the components of resilient leadership. This episode was recorded in late 2023. Well, Melissa, thank you for joining us on The Purposeful Strategist. I wonder if, to get us into the conversation, you could tell us a bit about yourself, your background, because I know it's a pretty interesting one, and also a bit about Slingshot Saradata. Why'd you join? What are you hoping to do there? How are you thinking about purpose and strategy. That's a lot. <laughs> Sorry, but let me just give you a chance to, to kind of share a bit about yourself. Yeah. So hi, I'm Melissa Quinn. I am from Cornwall, uh, where I live down in the Southwest. However, as you might be able to tell, I'm not Cornish. I actually grew up basically the middle of nowhere in the foothills of the Rockies in Canada and moved to the UK to study the London School of Economics. And I went into a very niche area around aerospace economics. I loved aviation. So not so much space, but definitely love seeing big machines up in the air doing really cool stuff. And that, that was pretty much the basis of my dissertation when I was in university, seeing how these amazing technologies can support economic development in different parts of the world, innovation clusters, bringing and developing skill sets in local communities, inspiring younger generations. So it was very, very niche. It's one of those things that when I went on to do my master's, my mom was like, um, are you sure you're going to be able to find something that niche out there in the real wide world? And yes, I did. I finished my education and I moved down to Cornwall because the airport down here had recently been bought by the council from the MOD and they were looking at how they could use this huge and incredible asset to attract business to the area, to Cornwall, to try and diversify the economy away from just tourism and farming and fishing. And yeah, I came down as a consultant, really. And originally, it was all aviation based. It started to get a bit interesting when we started to learn there was these things called unmanned aerial systems or very advanced drones. And we started looking at how we could test them on the site because we had a really long runway and low residential buildup around it, you know, access over the sea and the danger areas off the coast of Cornwall that they could do their testing in. So I was busy doing that, nothing really to do with space. And then space came knocking in end of 2013, beginning of 2014, when 
project I was working on was shortlisted as a potential spaceport by the UK government. This was quite some time ago. Yeah, I think people heard a lot about spaceport in the last few years, but actually it was pretty much a decade of work to get to that point. And I was there from the very beginning. So we were working at the site and this basically an email landed in their inbox saying, you've been shortlisted as a spaceport. Let us know if it's something you'd be interested in. And that just set, you know, this incredible emotional roller coaster journey that was then the next 10 years of, do we want to do this? Cornwall Council owned the site. Is it something that Cornwall Council wanted to invest in? And then my job at the beginning was really to write the bids, get the money in, lobby government for regulations and funding, work with the community to ensure that they were involved along the whole way, along the process. I started the STEM outreach project, so going into schools. Here I was, you know, I thought this is quite an exciting story for young people in Cornwall to hear about. So I got out there and suddenly, you know, we found ourselves with a customer, a Virgin Group, and Sir Richard Branson Space Company. We had the money secured, then we started to get the regulations and legislation done, building the facilities, and then next thing we were bringing a launch system over from America to launch to space. And I took the head role of the spaceport on in 2020, and I was the youngest person ever to lead a spaceport and one of the only women anywhere in the world to do it. It was challenging, but it was also rewarding, and launch takes over your life. <laughs> and it was It's an all-encompassing shifting, moving beast, really. And I had kind of always had this idea that after the first launch, I would spend more time with the family. So it was always in the plan. And then, you know, I met the CEO of of Slingshot and she was like, how you speak about space sustainability and responsibility in space fits really well with our our purpose here at Slingshot. So yeah, I made the really difficult decision to leave Spaceport in June. And I started with Whistling Shot running their Serodata subsidiary here in the UK. And I've been in that role for five months now. So it's been a year of change. <laughs> it sounds like it. It sounds like it. So there's one thing you said, I, I just kind of want to go back to it. It's your mother's comment about you taking on this master's because it sounds like actually it set you up by really focusing on a really tight area. You probably were one of the few people in the country, maybe in the world, when Cornwall County Council had this thing, it's like, she's the right person. She's the it. I think in the world we're in today, going for niche sometimes, even if you don't know exactly what what you're going to be doing, I think can be really the smart move. Absolutely. And I think it has to be led by what you're passionate about. I was in the generation where you kind of just went to university to go to university. And so many people I know just went in and were like, I don't really care what I take. I'll just you know, take anything. Hopefully that is changing. I think the niche areas or maybe even not going to university is something that I'm starting to see more and more now. Yeah. Yeah. So for somebody who doesn't know that much about it, like me, if you can just explain a little bit about space and sustainability and what Slingshot Serodata does and how those two all connect. Because when I hear space and sustainability, I kind of imagine it's got something to do with green agriculture, which maybe it does, but I have a funny feeling I'm missing something here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what we've kind of done with the word sustainability and the definition, if you think about it, is actually really just sustaining a asset or some sort of limited resource for the future. And humans haven't done a very good job of that in the past. And I liken space to our seas. And we're using space 
to gain economically, military, logistically. We're using space where it is a resource and it it feels massively infinite, similar to, I guess, how the seas probably felt 100 years ago, but it's not. And what we're starting to see now is that approach starting to get us into a bit of a tricky situation. So in the instance of space, I would love any of the listeners to think of space as part of our environment, because it actually is. We are obviously as as Earth, we're intrinsically linked to space. And so that disconnect I think a lot of people have from space is a danger because actually we do have a say in what goes on in space, because if we screw up space, we screw up Earth as well. So at the minute, what's happening is there's a huge increases in um, satellites being launched into space because satellites underpin absolutely everything that we do in daily life, especially in the West, from getting money out of your ATM to tractors and, and crop rotation to emergency services getting to where they need early warning systems for weather. And I could go on and on. We could do a whole podcast on just that. So we need more satellites in space. And they're exponentially growing. So we're going to launch more than we've ever launched ever in the history of humans. And we're putting thousands of spacecraft into space, but we're putting them into an orbit called low Earth orbit, which is the first orbit you hit. And that's becoming full. Lots of people know and have heard of space junk or space debris. And it's an issue because the more we put up there, the more we're risking collisions in space. And that might not sound that bad, but actually, let's say there is a communication satellite that is supporting the war in Ukraine, supporting Ukrainians with the communication tools that they need to effectively protect their land and the people. Imagine if somebody or something hit that satellite and destroyed it and instantly all communications went down. That's life critical. And that goes for every satellite that's up there that's delivering some critical piece of infrastructure here on Earth. And if one satellite hits another, that's one thing, but that then causes more debris that then goes on to potentially hit more. And it's called the Kessler effect. And it could just ruin (laughs) the ability for our future generations to use space. So what Slingshot do is is basically a few different things, but we um, observe and track and avoid collisions in space for our customers. And we can predict where satellites are going to go We can be transparent about that so that people can make maneuvers to get out of the way. Our database that anybody can subscribe to, the amount of information we have on there, it goes back to every single thing that's in space back to Sputnik. So we have a list of every spacecraft, if the spacecraft can maneuver, so they have thrusters or propulsion on them. We know what happened with an inactive satellite that's been lost and the insurance risk to that, future launches, future manufacturing, the list goes on and on and on. So it's bringing all that data together, fusing it so we can provide this space situational awareness, as we call it, to our customers so we can avoid collisions and keep space sustainable and safe for the future. So it's particularly for Sarah data, is this sort of avoidance of collisions kind of the heart of what you're trying to do there? Or is that one among many things that you can offer to customers? Saradata was a separate entity from Slingshot up until last year, and it was started by a man called Tim Fuller. And he really built it to kind of fit a gap in the market, which was a database that mainly the insurance industry could come on and use and assess risk for when they were insuring spacecraft. And obviously by insuring spacecraft, it keeps things more safe. Imagine if the majority of cars out there weren't insured and 
how people potentially would operate them. So that's why it was started. But what I think we've seen as this commercialization of space has grown, as we've seen a lot of space agencies around the world starting to use our database for that situational awareness of what's going on. So a lot of our top customers are the major space agencies. So from NASA to UK Space Agency to Australian Space Agency. And they're now becoming much more, wanting to be much more aware of what's up there, what's going on. So we're actually starting to see a bit more of the the government side, the military side of wanting to use our database for that collision avoidance and keeping safe space. Is that database sort of almost like a real-time tracking thing? I could pick some random satellite and then learn where it is, where it's headed, where it's going to be tomorrow? Or is it more historical? Here's where it started up to you to figure out where it is now. Yes. Well, that's the beauty of us being now part of Slingshot. So Sarah data is the contextual data. It's, it's more the historic data up till today. So anything launched today will be on the database. You can go and see the spacecraft. You pick a spacecraft that's been launched and you can check and see where it was manufactured, what it's doing, if it has propulsion on it. So you can understand if it's maneuverable and that's that kind of the starting point is the gateway and then if you really wanted to see a more complex picture or prediction of what might be happening in space you then go into our slingshot products which are basically similar to a dashboard of of space you can go on you can click you can see where things are going and we then fuse with ai so we had a, a fantastic example of what our capabilities are about four weeks ago. A Russian satellite started to move and act very strangely, and our AI system picked it up. The flag went off and said, this is something we need to monitor. It's way out in geostationary orbit because it parked up next to a very sensitive other satellite that it shouldn't be that close to. And so we were able to fuse the the Sarah data, contextual historic data of what satellites were what, where they were launched, who owns them. And then we added on the layers of um, optical sensors that we have, so physical telescopes, imagery, as well as the AI. And we were able to predict and see what was going on 22,000 miles above our head. And that then we were able to push out to the world to say, Hey, everybody, wake up. Something very, very strange is going on here. Um, We need to do something about it. So it gives us this actionable kind of insights that then the right people can make the right decisions. And where do you see, I guess is maybe going to a little bit begin to take us into the question of strategy, but where do you see all of that developing? I see it kind of twofold, I guess. And this is more just my personal opinion on where I see this all going. I see space sustainability is becoming more as any kind of sustainability topic more and more in the public eye the king earlier this year announced something called the astra carta for the space industry so we need to protect space for the future i need to call on the space industry to clean up its act and to put the right regulations in place there's no global policy on space debris at the minute So you really set a target for the industry to sort itself out. So I think from a kind of policy, political perspective, we are moving into trying to to crack what is a very, very challenging, difficult and nuanced set of policies to have the space industry start to abide by when they're going into space or launching into space. So that might be something like deorbiting your satellite in a responsible way when it comes to its end of life or repurposing it, recycling it. So there's many different layers to how we can clean it up. But that conversation is now starting. So that political side is kind of one part of the story that I see, you know, really starting to pick up 
steam and people starting to back it. You're starting to see conversations that weren't happening even five years ago now happening. And space industry people are very clever, as you would imagine. So I do believe that we can come from a political perspective and a policy, we can figure that out. And then technologically, I think there's you know, so many advances in the area of space debris mitigation from companies like ourselves that are monitoring and tracking it to give the right data to then companies like Astroscale, who are a fantastic active debris removal company. So they have incredible technology going up to actually clear out old spacecraft from space to get rid of the junk and recycle it in some cases. And then we have other incredible technologies here in the UK, a company called SpaceForge, good friends of ours, and they are doing on-orbit manufacturing. So rather than send more stuff from Earth into space, space is a fantastic environment to build semiconductors, for instance. So building and manufacturing in space is another thing that's happening. And then companies like OrbitFab who are refueling satellites in space. So a lot of satellites basically die because they don't have fuel anymore. So imagine if there's a fuel station in space that they could go and top up on. So there's some really incredible technologies that are now starting to pop up and get, not just be created, but also get funded. And that's always been the issue is that they haven't been invested in and that's starting to change. So I'm starting to see the future looking really, really good strategically from a policy perspective as as well as that technological side of it. I know you've not been at Slingshot Serodata all that long, but even in the time you've been there, have you kind of grappled with the question of what's our strategy? And if so, how'd you go about that? Was it you sitting in a room by yourself? Did you assemble the Serodata team, look to Slingshot as sort of the parent company? How do you go about that? I threw myself in the deep end right from the very beginning. That seems to be your approach. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not an idle person, but I think it's important when you come into a new project, a new company, whatever it is, to stop and listen first. And going from launching satellites to now tracking them is a very different language. I couldn't pretend like I knew what I was talking about at the beginning. So I had to learn and I had to learn very quickly. But to learn, I had to just sit and listen and watch And so I did that, you know, for the first few months really is is just really get into every meeting I possibly could, learn as much as I could, go to the panels and conferences and really just try and expose myself to the language. Then, yes, I started obviously with my Serodata team. We have this fantastic database and strategically we need to modernize that. We need to look at how we can use AI to free up capacity within the team to go on and do some really cool projects that I think will take us forward. We can't just sit and tick along. It's a great little business, don't get me wrong. But if we're just doing the day-to-day every day for the next few years, we're going to suddenly find ourselves behind. So we're quite lucky in that there's not very many competitors for what we do, but let's not rest on our laurels. So for me, strategically within Serodata, it was, you know, how can I motivate my team to get excited about taking on some new challenges and projects and really pushing the intelligence that we have in our database. And so that was kind of what I've spent the last few months doing with Serodata. And then Slingshot is basically a startup. It went series A last year, we'll go series B hopefully next year. So it's only a few years old and they're getting huge contracts in the US. It's very US centric and they were going through a lot of change organizationally. And so I came at a major time of change But in a way that's been helpful because I've been able to kind of be involved in the new direction and the new kind of setup of it. And so we had a huge strategic 
operation session in the US and Colorado. And it was basically locked in a bunker for two days as all the execs to figure out, you know, who are we? What are we doing? Where are we going? And then how are we actioning it? To sit alongside ex-NASA, ex-White House, ex-Lockheed Martin execs, you know, with 30 years experience, ex-military, like amazing careers to sit in a room with them for, for 48 hours and talk strategically was it was a massive experience for me to be part of and not just sit and listen but actually engage and input too so yes it's been an intense few months and um lots more to come but we're really excited because all that strategy by the end of this year coming to its time of action so from 2024 it's going to be rolling out action which is my favorite bit so Sure. If you can, kind of take us into the bunker in those 48 hours. How many people were there? Was it just people from Slingshot Sarah Data or were there some outside experts or facilitators or how did it work? Was it a whole lot of post-it notes or more presentations and Q&A? It was kind of everything. Um, We had a facilitator from outside the industry that was really good at kind of making sure everybody had a voice and that we had time to do all of those things you just said. So yes, there's post-its, but there was also um, kind of breakouts. There was group sessions. There was lots of whiteboarding. There was some presentations we had. I think there was probably about 15 people, which is a lot, but actually not all of them were execs. We brought in some of the really specialist product people from Slingshot and some of our investors as well to incredible investors that we have came and just helped us look at what is the future from a you know more investment perspective like what would people want to see so that worked we spent the first day doing kind of quite ethereal visionary what ifs if money wasn't an all, you know, all those kind of things, which some people love and some people definitely don't and then the second day was all action you know what's our plan what's actionable here who's accountable how do we roll this out through the company? And we came up with action initiative plans of, you know, four core ones. So we took huge amounts of ideas, thoughts, and we've narrowed them down into four distinct plans that will drive us forward. So it was really useful. And we were quite a new team as well. So even just to have those 48 hours together as a kind of exec team, especially when you're everybody's so remote working and all over the world, to have physical time together, to have dinner or breakfast or lunch or go for a walk, whatever. That kind of time is almost more valuable than anything else. You mentioned a few minutes ago, Series A and Series B. And I know startups and their life cycles are sort of becoming much better understood across all sorts of different businesses. But if you can just take us through broadly, like what's a business look like when it's at series A or B, you know, what's the scale and size right now of Slingshot and Slingshot Sarah data? Yeah. It, I mean, most people heard things like seed funding. And so when you're startup, if you decide to go out for rounds of funding, you know, there's pros and cons. And Sarah data is actually always private and never had investors. So Sarah data ran just on its own revenue and turnover. And you successfully did that for many, many years. But a lot of space companies, because they're so innovative and R&D heavy, they tend to go out for investment, whether that's VC or angel or family run or any kind of the amazing investment options there are. So Slingshot did that and went out for the first round, working really hard with investors in the US. So they um, raised, I think it was 24 million or something last year. 
so we've got basically two sides really of, of the financials, which is the investment side and then the revenue generation from the contracts. And we do now have investors that have expectations. And that's always the kind of challenge of when you do go out for investment. But I think our investor group is really supportive. And like I said, they've been involved with the business and, and wanting us to win, obviously. So we're now in a point where we are just shaping the business to then go on to that next stage. So between Series A and Series B, there's lots of different kind of tick boxes that we need to do as a company to get us in a really good place to kind of go and raise that extra round. So you're starting to grow your business to see additional revenue coming in, additional contracts, so you can show that a really healthy pipeline when you're going out for further rounds of investment. And then Series B really starts to get more serious and higher levels of of money. and, And that just obviously opens up higher growth, hiring, maybe an international footprint, which is what our plan is over the next year as well. So it's an exciting time to come into it. Coming from Spaceport, which the funding I was raising then was all government. I've come from a bit of a different side. And so this investor world is, is something that's quite new to me. As you think about the, you know, sort of the transition from Spaceport to Slingshot Sarah Data and kind of getting to know it and beginning to contribute to the team that's setting the overall direction, what for you has been the most exciting bit of that? What's been the most fun? A few things. I think leaving Spaceport was pretty scary <laughs> because it was pretty much all I knew for a career. And you kind of get set in the way of working in leadership. I didn't know if that translated outside of my spaceport bubble, really. I was so lucky to be kind of the figurehead and to have really a a high profile and to be told really kind things about my leadership, but I didn't know if that would translate. So for me, now seeing that, okay, coming into a completely new area of the space industry where there's so many technical experts and expertise that I'm not really ever going to have, but I can still offer a really interesting leadership style to them. And it's now, you know, exciting to see that actually it is translatable. And I can already tell that I'm I'm making a positive impact with how I lead. So that's been really exciting. The other thing I think is the kind of global reach that this company has and that I'll be leading that. And so for me, that challenge is so exciting to look beyond just the US and just the UK and start to bring in some of those other markets. And I absolutely love, you know, the economist in me loves markets, (laughs) international markets. That's, yeah, very exciting. And working with a US space company with people, as I said, that have done things over the last 30 years that I read about, to be part of that team is, is just such a privilege and massively exciting to continue to pick their brains and it's kind of the creme de la creme of of the space industry and the fact that I'm part of that is I never would have imagined that so for me it's massively exciting. I know leadership styles are often difficult maybe always close to impossible to describe but if you had to talk about what you see as the key building blocks of your own leadership style what would you say they are? Yeah, I have not read many books on this. My husband runs businesses and he's just incredible at like, oh, this book is like this. And and I'm just like, I'm just me. (laughs) I don't know. I don't really have like a a reference point. I think humans, I'm just really into humans and how they are motivated. Um, And so I really 
care about the people that I lead, especially small team and you have high expectations or you're doing a job that expects a lot and actually is quite critical to get right. You know, if we put the wrong data in, we could cause something pretty dramatic. So for me, like I know my team have really high expectations on them and similar to my team at Spaceport, like the pressure was huge. So understanding the humans and what will keep them going and being accurate and being professional is my number one thing. And getting to know them is really important to me. And so I've done a TED Talk on it, but kindness. And to me, kindness is not a weakness at all. It's actually a superpower. So for me, caring about the people that I'm leading is important and and not just saying that, like I actually do care. And that then means that you can create almost a family environment that people will want to show up for. And that trust is then built from, you know, trust in me, but also I can trust them to just get on and do what they need to do. It then kind of funnels then down to to purpose, which obviously, you know, a lot about with Spaceport. When I took the head roll on, it was very much like, we're not here for a paycheck. (laughs) Like we could go elsewhere and get paid a lot more. Why are we here? Go around the table. Tell me why you're here. And at first, they never really heard of what is purpose, why, you know, and so rolling that out now with especially Sarah Data has been really exciting to show them that intrinsic motivation to show up and do your job really well. And humor, I love having a sense of humor in a team. And there's obviously professionalism that you need to have, but like, you have to be able to have a laugh. So luckily with Sarah Data, they're a very funny bunch as well. So having that kind of humor to the day is so important. So I guess four things, I guess, human connection, purpose and humor and kindness are my leadership style. What haven't we talked about that we ought to touch on? What haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? I think for me, I guess to maybe just hint that it's really challenging. And I've had so many challenges from all different aspects over the years and even now. But I think being a leader or any strategic position, running a business, you'll come up against challenges and in the case of Spaceport, like failure. So you can work your proverbial off for 10 years, blood, sweat, tears, sacrifices across the board, family, life, everything, and it can still fail. And there's so much that we can learn in those moments and pretending that things are always going to be rosy. I think there's so much beauty in failure and in challenging situations that almost preparing for that is is really important. I never prepared for failure of the launch, but yeah, I found myself in the moment being myself and continuing on with those things. We just talked about kindness and purpose and humor to get through it. And if I didn't have that kind of backbone to my leadership, I definitely would have found a hole in crawled into it for a few years <laughs> because if you hit failure or major challenges and you don't have a strong backbone or a strong network or community around you, it can be so damaging. I got through it and I was on the front page of every paper in this country crying, like <laughs> to wake up the next morning after you failed at your business. Like imagine seeing your your picture on the front page of a paper crying. Um, so if anybody can get through something like that and say, hey, it's it's okay then. I guess that's that's sort of the kind of the price of doing something you really care about, you know, that, that isn't certain. You have to be willing to expose yourself to that. So, 
you know, in some ways it's great there are people like you who are, otherwise life would be pretty boring. Absolutely. And I guess my only thing is if you're not one of those people that are putting themselves out there and, and really going for it, then maybe just think about being a bit kinder to the ones that are. And I think, unfortunately, what you see is, is yes, there's a lot of people in this world that choose to have a pretty, pretty normal life. And that's absolutely fine. You know, the nine to five and the Monday to Friday do their kind of basic job. Absolutely fine. And, you know, most economies kind of run on that. And that's great. But don't then go and completely judge and take down the people that are really risking themselves to try and change the world, make it a better place, who are working crazy hours. You know, and that's, I think, the hardest bit I've seen, not just for myself, but anybody that really strives is when you get massively criticized from people that have never gone out of their comfort zone before. I find now that I kind of have two feet in different countries and in the US, it's almost celebrated that entrepreneurialism, that go get it, like see if you can do it. Whereas over here, I feel like a lot of times people try and take your knees out and cut you down the minute you do something wrong. In the context of all of that is the importance of character. Just having a sense of values and being able to live through some of those tough times and, you know, genuinely treating other people like human beings. I think all of that's ever more important for business leaders. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And we had a great thing when I started at Slingshot and it was leave your ego at the door. There's no room for egos here. And I really believe in that. I hope, again, that that's the way that business is going. There's still definitely a few out there, but um, yeah, we're getting there. Yeah. Well, listen, it's been really great to have you on as a guest. Appreciate you taking the time. And uh, perhaps somewhere down the road, a year, 18 months, two years, whatever, it'd be great to check back in and see how things have developed because you clearly have a big agenda in front of you. So yeah, I'd love to come back, check in, see where I am in a couple years would be great. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Bye now. Thanks, Robin. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.